Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello there and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. This is Molly. Molly, the Oscars are coming up. Awards season is in full force. I've got Oscars fever. You got Oscar fever? Uh, awesome. And until someone gives me a show where I can talk about fashion, then we're just going to talk about women and the Oscars here on the podcast. Yeah, and I think that this is the very first time that I've been more excited about who's going to win the Oscar for Best Director mm-hmm. than for Best Actor and Actress. Yes, we have the fourth woman ever yes. nominated for Best Director. And this is kind of a big deal. It's Catherine... Bigelow. Yes. Director of The Hurt Locker. The Hurt Locker. She has already won the Director's Guild Award, which is usually a very strong predictor mm-hmm. of who is going to get the Oscar nod. Um, and I think there have only been like six times in the history of the uh, the award that the, the same person who gets the DJ Award has not also gotten the, the Best Director Oscar. And she would be the first female to ever win Best Director, which right. would be... I think pretty awesome. I mean, high times, 2010 people. Yeah. Come on. But there is just a lot to consider when we think about her winning. Yeah, because before that, only three women have, aside from Bigelow, only three women have ever been nominated for a Best Director Oscar. We have Lena Wertmuller. In 1977 for Seven Beauties. We have got Jane Campion in 1994 for The Piano. And then we've got Sophia Coppola in 2004 for Fave of Mine, Lost in Translation. Mm -hmm. So now Bigelow is the fourth, but in my reading of the gossip mags and the entertainment mags, which are, you know, a pretty large percentage of my reading, not going to lie, I feel like that Bigelow is pretty much over being identified as a female director. Yeah. Even when she won the DGA award, so many of the congratulatory comments were mostly directed at her legs and her general hotness. Yeah, so I could see why she would be kind of sick of this. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Catherine is is a very fine woman. But I feel like that of all the women that I can think of um, who would want to be like a first woman to win something, like I'd love to be the first woman to win something. Mm-hmm. But I feel like she doesn't want to be that standard bearer because that might like haunt her career. And I feel that she wants to be recognized as a filmmaker rather than a female filmmaker. Yeah, there's a quote from uh, an article about this in the Daily Beast from Nora Ephron, who directed uh, movies such as Sleepless in Seattle. And she said, when you direct a movie, what you are is a director, not a woman director. Uh, when you make a movie, there is not the remotest sense on a day-to-day basis that you are not exactly the same as anyone else who directs a movie. And I think that kind of sentiment is shared among a lot of the more prominent female directors that they want to, you know, just be respected for their art and mm-hmm. not for their gender. Kind of like saying like, oh, wow, it's amazing that as a woman, yeah. you were able to make such an incredible movie about, you know, guys in Iraq. Catherine yeah. Bigelow. Catherine Bigelow is such an exception to the rule because she can direct these, you know, action heavy sequences about bombs and you know, other female directors are directing romantic comedies. And there was a really great article in the New York Times uh, when that movie came out about Catherine Bigelow, about how 
she, when she first started having some directing success, those were the only scripts she got were romantic comedies. Mm-hmm. That that was, you know, the acceptable place for a female director to live. And she had a really great quote um, that I think is a good marker for women everywhere, where she said, if I... She said, if I had a prayer of shooting something that intrigued me, I was going to have to be the architect of my own fate. And so that's how she started seeking out these non-traditional female directing roles. Yeah. And while a lot of her movies have been big studio releases, they have not been financed by big studios. She still had to strike out on her own to get the get the financial backing for for a lot of these. And when we started researching this this podcast, that makes a lot of sense because apparently, you know, it's these evil studios that just want to make billion dollar blockbusters. They want to make Avatar, let's face it. <laughs> and, you know, speaking of Avatar, another thing about Catherine Bigelow, she cannot escape the fact that she's been married to James Cameron. She was married to James Cameron for three years, like twenty years ago, and the headlines will not Shut up about it. I know. And they really are offensive. This poor woman has had such crap written about her. There was one, um, I think Huffington Post yeah. title that said, like, Catherine Bigelow is better looking than her husband and wins more awards than him. Her ex-husband. Yeah. I mean, she made a really great movie. Can we just say that? Yeah. Which is, you know, again, why I kind of had mixed feelings about doing this podcast, because on the one hand, I do love the Oscars immensely. I want to talk about everything related to them. On the other hand, I do feel bad kind of pointing out over and over again, she is a woman. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, do I have an obligation as a woman to go see a a movie directed by a woman? I don't know. We'll get into all this issues later. But let's go back to these evil studios. Yeah, we've got a pretty famous or infamous incident, I should say, in 2007 when the Warner Brothers picture group president, Jeff Robinov, allegedly said that he never wanted to do any kind of like big budget movie with a female lead because he had had this series of flops with uh, Jodie Foster's The Brave One, Hilary Swank's The Reaping, and Nicole Kidman's The Invasion. It just totally tanked at the box office. Then we followed up in 2008 with Sex and the City and Mamma Mia, mm-hmm. two very girly movies, um, bringing in lots of bucks. And whenever a movie like that, brings in lots of bucks, you will always see some sort of article that's like, oh, well, we forgot that women go to the movies. Yeah, who knew? Yeah, because typically teen boys are the number one movie-going cohort. And so that's what studios are designing around. So every every time there's a big, like, female-centric movie, they'll be like, okay, now we're going to make more movies with women. And some the Daily Beast that Kristen said earlier is now saying that 2009 is the year of the woman because there are about, what, 10 movies that yeah, female I mean, focus. We have all, well, we don't only really have like pretty huge blockbuster hits, like something as simple as The Proposal, starring mm-hmm. Sandra Bullock, that was directed by Ann Fletcher. But in the uh, Oscars, we have um, Julie and Julia, which was nominated by Nora Ephron, and Meryl Streep has been directed by Nora Ephron. Directed by Nora Ephron, right? Um, and Meryl Streep is up for an Oscar for that. We've got An Education, directed by Lauren Scherfig. And, um, of course, we've got Bigelow's uh, Hurt Locker. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, you know, there, there does seem to be a pretty pretty good representation of female-directed movies in this year's Oscars. But still in 2009, only 10% of the films, at least reviewed by the New York Times, that came out, you know, the bigger films were directed by women. Yeah, 10% seems to be the sticking number. We were reading this other article where that was, you know, essentially the number from 2008, and it was the number from 1998. Yeah, still 10% only of all the, the big movies that came out. 
And so, and you know, the Guardian put it kind of an interesting way that there have been more than 400 director nominations since the Oscars started for best director. Four of them go to women. Yeah. So we've got a pretty big, pretty big gap. I mean, there's um, this one group that put out a billboard that said that the female, I mean, that the Senate, the U.S. Senate is more equal than the movie making industry. We tend to think of movie makers as more liberal, more enlightened. Mm -hmm. Why is there still this gender gap in filmmaking? Well, it isn't necessarily because there are fewer women um, going to school for film school for directing uh, that same Guardian article that you reference um, says that women make up around 34% of the directing students in Britain. And I would only assume that, you know, similar statistics can be extended to film schools in the U.S. Which reminds me of a quote, Kristen, from Martha Coolidge, who was the first female president of the Directors Guild of America. And she, basically when she applied to go to film school, they were like, well, you'll never be a director. Mm-hmm. You're a woman. So I think that despite the advances that women have made in, you know, essentially every other field, I think there's still that thought by, you know, those already established in the field that women just can't do it. She mm-hmm. did a, she had another quote, um, where she was told that no woman over 40 could possibly have the stamina to direct a feature film, that these films are just too tough, too big. They can't take it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you've got already the people in your industry thinking that you can't do it, despite the fact that women have done it, I mean, that's just troublesome. Yeah. And I think that, um, Women who want to direct a movie, who need to go out and get financing for it, who kind of have to, you know, bang down all these doors, do have sort of a different battle to fight than male film directors. Okay, let's just take, for instance, um, uh, going out to find financing. Okay, a lot of times you're going to probably go to um, wealthy men, you know, mm-hmm. producers to go see if you can... Um, to get some help with your movies, going out for a female, going out for, you know, drinks, negotiating drinks, you know, business drinks with, uh, with a guy, different kind of dynamic than, than guy to guy kind of talking film shop. A lot of times it might be misconstrued as flirtation. There was one article that we ran across saying that, you know, a lot of times these, uh, these female, some of these female directors might be, you know, really hated by the wives and girlfriends of these, uh, these wealthy backers. Um, and, and some, in some cases they were propositioned. Yeah. Like, do you want to direct this video or not? Yeah. And there have also been questions, you know, raised of, well, maybe it comes down to differences, uh, between gender differences in negotiation. You know, we've talked about negotiation in the podcast before a lot and women are not as, I guess, forthcoming in some uh, situations with negotiation as, as men are. We might not be as comfortable about self-promotion because it might come off as unfeminine. However, those kind of sort of, that kind of argument has, was kind of debunked in, in the article too. But I think that it might come to into place sometimes. I think so. I mean, you've got to go out and sell. And I think that women are taught to soft sell. Yeah. And so let's say that you get, you're working outside the studio system because we've talked about how the studios want to make these films for these teenage boys. Let's say you're working outside the studio system. You cobble together enough money from those awkward cocktail meetings with the producers. These women are saying that when they first step on set, there's just a noticeable difference between what they can do and what a male director can do. Mm-hmm. Already, you know, they've got their subordinates saying, oh, you know, we thought you were the assistant to the director or something. Mm-hmm. But I thought we found a pretty interesting NPR article um, that profiled Nia Bartolos, who was the star and creator of My Big Fat Greek Wedding. She's directing a new movie called I Hate Valentine's Day. 
which Kristen and I have already discussed that we no do not like this title. <laughs> but she has said that, you know, one day someone on her set said, I'm glad that you're only doing, you know, just a few takes and keeping everyone on time because, you know, if you didn't, then everyone would be breathing down your neck because you're a woman. Yeah. Whereas, you know, let's say Martin Scorsese needs a few extra takes. No one's going to criticize that. Well, and Martin Scorsese is probably, well, obviously, is going to have a much bigger budget to work with. Like mm-hmm. some uh, some women filmmakers might um, just be considered more of a financial risk because they're not going to be making the, you know, $400 million avatar out there that's going to make, you know, a billion dollars in a week or whatever insane box office draw that it had. But the interesting thing is it seems like women directors are able to do more with less. Yeah. They'll they- make a movie like the proposal for under $30 million and, and totally blow it out of the water at the box office. Right. And they've done studies where they try and compare, you know, the lowest money making movies to the highest. And gender has nothing, nothing to do with that. Mm-mm. I mean, women, women have proven they can do the job when they're given the job, but they're still not getting the job. Or if they are, they're being pigeonholed into romantic comedies, the rom-coms. But I think one great point that uh, Nora Ephron brought up in a Salon article from 2002 was the power and influence of the foreign market onto mm-hmm. uh, industry decisions. Because basically she was saying that um, if you don't have a movie starring, you know, a, a, a male star who's big in Asia, then the movie's not going to make, you know, a ton of money. and mm-hmm you know, execs aren't going to be very interested in it. So obviously, I mean, it's clear that to be successful in Hollywood, you have to make money. And so that reminded me of something we read about an article of these, these women who started sort of a first weekenders club. Mm-hmm. And so if a, if a movie came out directed by a woman, they would just bombat, um, bombard their, their email list with like, please to go see this movie, like go see this movie, support women, remind Hollywood that we're a viable audience and they'll make more movies for us. And, you know, that's when I started to feel rubbed a little bit the wrong way because I don't want to have to go see movies just because a woman directed them. I just want to go see good movies. Right. So, you know, it's a little bit like I was saying where I'm a little bit uncomfortable that we're highlighting Catherine Bigelow because despite this amazing accomplishment, she really just at the end of the day wants to remember for making a good movie. Right. But I think that it might be, I, I do like the idea of, Maybe exploring more, intentionally exploring more, um, movies, not necessarily, you know, just going to, going out to the movies, not just old, new ones, but, um, really learning more about what female directors are out there. There was an article, um, highlighting female directors in a bitch magazine. And I didn't realize that some of these movies that I really loved were directed by, by women. So I thought it'd be kind of, kind of cool to call out some of these, uh, these names, because a lot of times, you know, when I think of a director, a film director, honestly, I, you know, Scorsese, Quentin Tarantino, I mean, it's all these guys that immediately come to mind. Did you see that quote in one of the articles about how um, Quentin Tarantino ruined it for the indie female filmmakers? Oh, because of uh, Pulp Fiction? Yeah, they thought they could really operate in that indie world. And then, you know, Quentin Tarantino showed Hollywood that indies could make all this money. And then, you know, then they had to make money, too. So I'll start off with one we've mentioned her um, because she directed one of this year's femme-friendly movies, Jane Campion, who was obviously one of the one of the three who got a nomination before Catherine Bigelow. Um, if you haven't seen Bright Star, the movie she directed this year, I thought it was great. But she's also directed Portrait of a Lady, In the Cut. She's from New Zealand. 
she did win uh, the year that she directed the piano for Best Original Screenplay. Uh, we also have uh, Karen Kusama, who debuted with Girl Fight, but she also um, directed a movie that came out this year starring uh, Megan Fox <laughs> uh, called Jennifer's Body. It's mm-hmm. a vampire film that came out. Heard it's kind of uh, campy and entertaining. Uh, we also have Julie Tamar, who uh, directed Titus and Frida uh, across the universe and the upcoming, or I think it's probably already come out now, The Tempest. Right. Did you see um, Bend It Like Beckham? Kristen? I didn't see it. Oh, Kristen. I know. Um, Garinda Chada. Uh, that came out in 2002, but she also did a movie called Baji on the Beach and one called What's Cooking? Now, one director that on this list that I am really interested in uh, delving into a little bit more is Deepa Mehta. She's an Academy Award-nominated director and screenwriter who's best known for Elements Trilogy. And I watched the... I haven't seen any of um, these movies, but I watched the trailer for the second film in the series called Earth. It looked pretty awesome. Cool. So I might Netflix some uh, Deepa Mehta movies. Okay. One last one, Mira Nair, uh, who directed Monsoon Wedding and The Namesake. But I think that uh, this list would we would be remiss if we didn't mention two heavy hitters in the female director world. We've got Nancy Myers and Nora Ephron. And Ephron, we've mentioned a number of times throughout this podcast. Um, but Nancy Myers, we haven't talked about so much. But they are really some major power players in mm-hmm. Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, Nancy Myers actually has final cutting rights on all of her films, which is evidently a rare privilege for a director, according to this article in New York Times Magazine. And she's paid upward of $12 million for each film she makes. And um, and in the movies that she has directed um, since uh, a partnership with her ex-husband, Charles Shire, her movies have surpassed $200 million in revenue worldwide. Yeah. So she's got some leverage. She does, but, you know, we were reading a New York Times profile of her, and it seemed that even though she had this tremendous leverage, she's made, you know, so much money for Hollywood, they still kind of temper profiles of her with, you know, this is pretty good for a woman. Yeah. I think there's one uh, there's one bit in the article that said uh, someone has described her aesthetic as, quote, the cashmere world of Nancy Myers, because evidently she pays a lot of attention when she's directing to just the interiors. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the movie, uh, the, the house where something's got to give, uh, was directed, was featured in like architectural digest. You know, it's always these very kind of Hamptons esque, very beachy, lots of whites and linens and creams, um, in the, uh, in the, background, you know, and they're saying, you know, kind of dismissing it as just her feminine side, her female touch, yeah, her female touch. So, I mean, I think that that's, that's frustrating. No matter how great your movie is, it's still, they're going to look for something. Yeah. It's not just basic attention to detail as, you know, probably a lot of, you know, really great male directors have, you know, it's because it's in this specific kind of domestic setting, you know, and then we also have, uh, Nora Ephron who also kind of leads the charge on these, Films that today really appeal to, you know, older kind of second wave feminists, I guess, um, kind of navigating this uh, kind of post-divorce world that they're living in with films like It's Complicated and uh, What Women Want. So Nancy Myers and Nora Ephron are two that have kind of gotten pigeonholed as these middle-aged um, female fantasy directors mm-hmm. with all that architecture. And you think about a movie like What Women Want, where Nancy Myers directed, you know, where it's... 
was pretty much what women wanted. Yeah. Mel Gibson to read their minds. Well, not anymore. Mel Gibson in pantyhose. <laughs> uh, I don't know if she read my mind. Once, but... <laughs> but still a cute, cute enough movie. Yeah. So that's our, that's our mini Oscar preview. Something to look out for when you're, when you're watching the Oscars, whether Catherine Bigelow takes it or not. And if she does, I think it'll be fun to watch how many commentators just focus on the woman thing. Yeah, you could probably make, if she does win, you could probably make a drinking game to how many leg references, face references, and James Cameron divorce references oh, yes. are made. I mean, people get over it. She's an attractive older woman who happens to be a badass director as well. Exactly. Yeah. So that's our, that's our point of view on her. Mm-hmm. And guys, share with us your favorite female directed movie. Oscar picks. And if you notice, we haven't said a thing about Oscar-nominated actresses at all. Could have been a two-parter. Could have been a two-parter. Oh, well. So, Oscar thoughts. Send them our way. The email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And before we wrap up, we'll read some emails from people who wrote to that very address. First off, I'm going to read one from Erica, who writes, I'm hyperhidrosis affected. For a while, I tried the clinical deodorants and even got prescription deodorants. Prescriptions would work, but made my underarms ache. I was also nervous about the aluminum content, which was much higher than retail deodorants, especially because of family history of breast and other cancers. A new doctor recommended Botox injections to stop the sweat, which I tried. It works like a charm. I get the underarm injections about every six to eight months. While it's quite painful, it's over quickly, and I'm underarm sweat-free for months. I've experimented with use of deodorant and found that while I need much less, the sweat-loving bacteria still make me stinky. Botox injections is also used to dry the palms of the sweaty-handed. So, Kristen, you should really, should you really want to be dry-handed at the next wedding, Botox may be key. I think we all remember Kristen talking about her sweaty palms. So, thanks, Erica, for... (laughs) For some good advice for Kristen. And can I go on record as, uh, you know, emphasizing that (laughs) it's kind of a joke about my sweaty palms. No, she has really sweaty palms. (laughs) Oh, man, Molly, you don't know that. All right, well, I've got an email here from uh, Joe in response to our episode on cheating. And uh, he responded to a lot of different points in the podcast. I'm going to highlight one um, from a statement we made saying that men admit that the women they cheat on uh, or cheat with are not as pretty as their wives. He said, I'd like to say that this is a plausible statement because I feel that when men cheat, it's for something cheap and tawdry. Men find women that they love to be the most beautiful woman in the world, but even if the woman they cheat with has more sex appeal, we'd see her more as a tool than we're looking to accomplish, that we're looking to accomplish selfish goals with. Two examples in the movie Analyze This, Robert De Niro's character admits to cheating on his wife rather nonchalantly. He asks if he's happy, and he replies that he is. Then he asks why he cheats, and he angrily replies, she kisses my children with that mouth. That leads me to believe that he loves his wife and children, but would do something with a woman, just a tool to him, he doesn't care about to fulfill selfish pleasures. The other example comes from a woman Tiger Woods cheated with, on his uh, cheated on his wife with. His wife is very obviously a beautiful woman, and the women that came forward paled in comparison to his wife's looks. There we go. There we go, Joe. A male's point of view on it. Yeah, so if you guys want to send us your thoughts, email us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And as always, you can check out our blog. It's called How To Stuff, and you can find it and a bunch of other fun articles to read at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.
brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?